Joan, thanks so much for coming to talk with us about your new book, uh, American Original. Thank you for having me. So tell us something that most of us didn't realize about Justice Scalia, who I just agree with you is the most fascinating member of the court. Well, there are two ways that I found uh, new information about him. I'd say on the personal front. Here he is, he's an only child of these two striving immigrant families. But I discovered he was also the only offspring of his generation. So he really had the spotlight on him the entire time, which I think contributes a lot to his personality now. His father was very demanding, and I found that the justice himself felt like he let his father down at several turns. So that sort of personal story from the first generation family, heavily influenced by the Catholicism, the uh, Italian striving, the tension between his mother and father's families intrigued me too. His mother's family was quite the extroverted, storytelling, uh, people kind of family, and the father's family could not abide silliness. So I found that some of the tension in his, uh, his, his being naturally drawn to confrontation and tension sort of had roots in his early childhood in Trenton and Queens. On the professional side, uh, everything that you suspect about Justice Scalia is true to the nth degree. He is incredibly intense still in person, one-on-one. -on -one. As you know, I sat with him for about a dozen interviews, and he takes everything seriously and passionately. Uh, of course, it's not without his fun also. Well, fascinating, and I want to come back and talk about the influence of his upbringing. But you started to tell us about the process of the book. Now, you've been through this before with the Senator Day O'Connor biography. Tell us how you wrote this book uh, and maybe what was different about this process from the O'Connor process. Sure. I'd always been intrigued by Justice Scalia, even when I started reporting in town uh, about 20 years ago, working for Congressional Quarterly. He was an intriguing justice because of his uh, his attitudes toward Congress. So the first time I even interviewed him was 1990 uh, when I was a reporter with CQ. And I'd always followed him quite, uh, quite intensely, uh, including for the Washington Post and now USA Today. And as you probably remember, there's a chapter in my O'Connor book called O'Connor versus Scalia. And at that time, I never thought that, that Justice Scalia himself would become a subject. But the O'Connor research, my natural interest in him for the last 20 years, led me to him when the O'Connor book was done. I also saw him as the true realization of the Reagan revolution in a way that Justice O'Connor, Ronald Reagan's first appointee, was not. So I worked up a proposal. I got a lot of interest in it, and then I went for it. He initially said that he would not sit for interviews. He said, you know, talk to my family, talk to my former clerks, talk to my colleagues, but I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to look authorized. But then what happened was he realized I was spending so much time in his life in Trenton, in Queens, and getting so much of his family story that he was interested in what I was finding out. And one thing led to another, and I had about a dozen interviews with him. And how expansive was he? He was expansive. I There were a couple things that he revealed that I hadn't known, you know, disappointments when he didn't get into Princeton, when he didn't get the Solicitor General job that went to Rex Lee in the uh, first Reagan years. I thought that was interesting because I frankly had thought he led a pretty much of a charmed life, which he still did. Things mostly went his way. Look, he was a, uh, when he didn't get into Princeton, he went to Georgetown, no slouch school. When he didn't get the Solicitor Generalship, he ends up in, on the uh, District of Columbia Circuit. Not really that bad of a consolation prize. 
But those things stuck with him. In fact, he told me that he never forgot the pain of not getting the SG job. And his wife, Maureen, who was, uh, who was quite a stitch personally, but also just a very good person to have interviewed during this process to find out about the justice and what kind of father he was, how the family lived over the last couple decades, so that she remembered vividly when he got that disappointment. He had thought that he was going to have that job. Right. I was fascinated by that story in the book because I, had, as someone who's interested in the Supreme Court, had no idea that he came that close at, uh, in that administration. Um, what effect do you think that had on him? Or once he got on the D.C. Circuit and then the Supreme Court, is that completely past him or did he, is that palpable to him? That was still palpable. In fact, when he got the call to even meet Ronald Reagan for the nomination to the Supreme Court in 1986. He got the call on a Friday afternoon. He didn't tell anyone except for his wife, Maureen, because he said, I was worried that the same thing that happened with the Solicitor Generalship could happen again. So he was quite anxious and superstitious about it. And it all turned out great. In fact, Ronald Reagan said to him, if you're interested, uh, I'm going to nominate you for uh, the Associate Justice position. He says this to Scalia in this interview, and, Justice, and now Justice Scalia says, I'll take it. <laughs> there was no second, no, I don't want to sleep on it. I'm in there with you. And, and there are wonderful pictures from the, the scene with them in the uh, uh, Oval Office enjoying each other's company. Um, there is a good bit of discussion in the book about the effect of religion on the justice. What's your take on that? That's an excellent question, and I would have to say that was one of the hardest chapters to write because so many people view his rulings on abortion and church-state issues as being influenced by his Catholicism, even though the justice himself says, absolutely not. I read texts. I am influenced by the original understanding of the Constitution. I'm influenced by the text of a law. But what I say after laying out his arguments, arguments from critics, is that there are two passions here that cannot be denied, and that's the, I decided to uh, title the chapter Passions of His Mind, that he has an intense passion about his Catholicism and what where religion and spirituality are in his life, and he has an intense passion about Roe versus Wade, and those two things cannot be denied. He says that they are parallel, that they do not intersect, but I basically put them in the same context and let him have his say and let critics such as the University of Chicago's Jeff Stone have it had their say. And I think what readers should draw from it is that he himself believes that he cannot separate his religious life from his intellectual life. And he himself also believes that he comes to abortion independent, in terms of his decisions, independent of those religious views. Yeah, the description in the book of the exchange over Stone's comments on Justice Scalia's religion is striking and quite personal and, and harsh. Uh, the justice really does seem to take this incredibly seriously, the, the allegation that he decides cases on the basis of his religion. Yes, it's interesting to use the construction of takes things seriously. Early on, when I was even describing his time on the court in 86 and 87, and I was talking about the negotiating among justices, uh, there was, that phrase occurred to me because some of the justices, such as William Brennan, who was notori notoriously good at uh, sort of compromise on his own part, uh, was able to craft majorities, whereas Justice Scalia really took everything seriously and didn't want to let go of different things. In time, he, he did a little bit, but uh, especially on religion, very serious. Well, you describe, for example, 
William Rehnquist's dilemmas in assigning opinions to the justice for concerns about whether his views would be so strident that he would lose a majority. That's right. And in some of those early cases, he indeed did lose the majority. Uh, that's why the book culminates with the Heller case, the District of Columbia guns case, where not only is it an originalist opinion uh, striking down the DC uh, handgun ban, he kept a majority on this huge case. Justice Kennedy did not write separately. No one broke off. And that was quite an accomplishment for him uh, at this point. You also talk about, beyond the justices' decisions, uh, his role as an intellectual leader from the very first days of the Federal Society. And can you talk about that? His, his, not just his decisions, not just his opinions, but his intellectual views really shaping an entire generation of lawyers. Yes, in fact, I think that is a major contribution he's made to the law and to the contemporary view of conservatism, legal conservatism. If he had not gotten Chief Justice John Roberts and Samuel Alito as colleagues on the Supreme Court and now have many more like-minded justice justices to work with, he still would have been a success of sorts, precisely for what you say. He was, in effect, present at the creation of the Federalist Society and the legal conservative movement of the uh, you know, the modern legal conservative movement of the uh, Ronald Reagan that had its roots in the Ronald Reagan era and the Goldwater era. He learned to speak beyond the marble walls through his dissents, through multitude appearances out there, through going to college campuses, speaking to law students. As you and I both know, there's so many law students, even liberal law students, who say they will turn to a Scalia opinion first just because it is so engaging, even if they don't like what he says, they're captivated by how he says it. What ultimately, when we look back on Justice Scalia's career, whether it's his academic career, his time in the government, uh, his time as a Supreme Court justice, what do you think his principal legacy will be? Will it be his tone? Will it be the substance of his views? Will What, what will we most remember him for? Well, he certainly kept alive conservatism at a time when political conservatism is waning, when arguably uh, conservatism is a movement beyond the law is dead. He has kept it as a major force in the uh, third branch. Uh, I think we'll look back and see that it was of a piece that at Harvard he had some of these views, that in the Nixon and Ford administrations they were percolating, especially his views on executive branch power, that uh, he laid groundwork at the DC Circuit. There's a certain persistence and consistency and mission that come through here, that no matter where you are in the law, uh, it's sort of a lesson for uh, for success in achieving something. He didn't let up. He has not worn out, even though he may wear thin with some people, he has not worn out. And that's what I thought we saw with the uh, DC Circuit Heller guns case. And what we might see over the next couple of years, even though he's 73, as we know, that's young in justice's years. And I think it's hard to measure exactly what his legacy will be. Let me just finally say on tone, uh, there's a lot of controversy over his tone, whether that is effective, whether that has turned off way too many people, including Justices uh, Kennedy and O'Connor, and what that really will get him beyond a youthful uh, group of uh, 
students out there who, who love that sort of irreverent tone of his, but I think it will mostly be in his idea of originalism and his approach to the law. Thanks so much. Thank you.